Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. It's Kevin and Query on 93.5 and 107.5. The Fan. There are a few people that it more are more defined by sharp-dressed man than our next guest, who joins us on the Payless Liquors Hotline. Great hair also, by the way. Uh, Rick DeMoling joins us to talk about the Colts as they get set. Reporting on Tuesday, practice begins on Wednesday. And, Rick, I'm going to begin right away with this, and thanks for joining us this morning. First off, I guess my first question would be, what the hell are you doing up this early? <laughs> well, I just got back from a nice long trip, and i got to get back working out. So the only time I can work out so my body feels good is when the kids are asleep. So, and the trip was where? Uh, we went to the Grand Tetons, Yellowstone, oh, and then Boise, awesome. Idaho. You know, and that's, I mean, that's obviously your neck of the woods, right? Because you grew up, you kind of, not the Pacific Northwest, but pretty darn close, right? Oh, yeah, I was in Washington, so we're the Pacific Northwest, and it was just great to get back and talk about God's country. It is beautiful out there. It is, man. I, I've always wondered this. Obviously, I know, like, in Seattle, what that the winters are pretty mild, but when you get into like the Tetons area, the, the winters are probably pretty brutal, right? That, I think, yeah, I mean, they I've never been in the Tetons. This is the first time in the Tetons for me, but, man, it, they said it was up to six to ten inches of snow, or feet of snow, excuse me. Whoa. So, yeah, it, it gets pretty crazy. Yeah, I, it is. I'll tell you what, if, if, if anybody listening has never been to Yellowstone or the Tetons area, it is. Got to go. It, you do. I mean, it's it's. It's one of those places that I've always said there are a few places that look just like the pictures, and then you get there and you're like, yeah. oh my gosh! Like it, you could just sit and stare for hours. Like and driving in that area is is funny when you're on the interstate because I think the time goes fast because you're just staring constantly. You know what I mean? Oh yeah, I mean the the Tetons. That's what like a mountain should look like. I mean rugged and just <laughs> you're right. beautiful. And then you're driving through Yellowstone and you're just have your eyes peeled for any animal. I mean we saw. Obviously, bison everywhere, bear, elk. I mean, bald eagles. It's it's just amazing. Yeah, it's pretty I mean, awesome. Has, yeah, the worst thing is just driving because I mean, it, driving kills my back, but it was worth it. Now, I'm curious. So you go on vacation, you come back, you're getting back in the swing of things. I would think that as an NFL player, this time of year feels like when you were a kid on the first day of school. You're excited to see everybody and get reacquainted at first, and then. After a couple of days, reality kicks in, and you're like, "Man, this sucks." What is the yeah. mindset of a player at this point right now? If you are on the Colts roster, what's going through your mind? Did I do enough? It, holy crap! Am I ready for this? Like the first two years as a rookie, it's, you have no idea what to expect, right? And so you're just going in kind of blind, and you're just you don't know anybody really yet. You know maybe a couple of people, so you don't have that familiarity with it. Like, oh. <laughs> But, man, are you going in just like, did I do enough? Oh, my gosh, I'm going to die. This is miserable. My first year was Mora's, Jim Mora's last year, and he was one of, like, the last, for the Colts, and he was one of the last, like, old-school coaches, and it was grueling. Um, I mean, you're down in – we were in Terre Haute at the time, and I, I promise you it feels like you're in, like, a, a bowl where there's no wind. It's just hot, humid, sticky, and zero wind. It's protected by trees and a little bowl, and – um, but yeah, you're just hoping like, I hope you don't die. That's kind of like, that's how I felt. I'm like, I coming from the Midwest or not from the Midwest, being on the West coast, like you don't have humidity. So coming into this was just like, this is, this is crazy. What are we doing here? 
I got to ask, even though this isn't the topic of the conversation, Rick, but I loved more from a media standpoint. I loved Jim Mora, and I loved him. I I talked to him probably two or three years ago, and he was wonderful. But I didn't play for him, and I know that he was. You know, he's military guy, right? So kind of old school. Um, I think he. My guess is obviously as a coach, he was demanding. But was the reward with the demand from him? You know, it, it was hard to say. So that was, like I said, my rookie year was his last year, and we weren't very good. We were, I think, six and ten. Um, but like you said, it, he came with a great sound bites, right? I mean, there's some great stories oh, from leading up to that that entire year that I look back and they're hilarious. But during the time, it was like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. And obviously, with the reward, we weren't winning, so it's kind of hard to really say that. <laughs> that we so were you? I'm, I'm trying to think. If that was his last year, I can't re- recall. Was that the playoffs yeah. year? Yeah, that was that year, right? The San Francisco yeah. loss? Yep. <laughs> yeah, that was when so, yeah. Jim Moore decided to challenge Peyton Manning, and that didn't go so yeah. well. Um, nope. Did you ever, Rick, as a player, you know, you played, obviously you established yourself in Indianapolis. You played for the Colts, then you go to Detroit, and then, you know, back here, and then it ended, I think, in Washington. But did you ever go into a training camp thinking – I'm pretty solid here. Or are you constantly head on the swivel looking for other players that might have surpassed you in the off season? Uh, when I got to the Colts, obviously I didn't know what to expect. So I wasn't thinking I, I was late seventh round pick. So I'm like, okay, I know I'm expendable. Just do what I can to make the team. Second year, it looked like I was going to be the starter, so I, but I still wasn't solidified. But I would say like third and fourth year, I felt relatively comfortable um, and then up in Detroit, it was a disaster. My my body went, my mind went, and so I wasn't performing. So that's when I was like, well, they can cut me at any time. Um, and then my last year in uh, D.C., it was literally like, okay, I'm doing this last year, and then I'm calling it quits. So I was kind of like prepared for anything. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that, that's a pretty common thing for a lot of guys outside of guys that have been in it for like five years. Like Quentin Nelson probably isn't looking over his shoulder. Right, thinking like, oh, who's going to replace me? Even though they had a down year, you're probably not thinking that. But like, that's the vast majority of reality for the or the reality for the vast majority of players. Like, okay, who's coming to take my spot? How can I stay here? And so, like, yeah, there's like an anxiety there. I would assume. Can you elaborate on my mind went? Oh yeah, I just was not mentally there in regards to like, hey, this is what I have to do. I was in pain. I wasn't playing well, so like we always used to call it like you're, you're in the tank, right? Your mind's in the tank, your body's in the tank, you're just not you're not there mentally or physically. Like you're just kind of trying to survive. And can you tell when teammates are in the tank? Oh, yeah. Like the body language, just the way that they interact with you, like how if they're standoffish, if all they talk about is negative stuff. So it's pretty easy to see, and um, I mean, it's not everybody who's in it, but it's one of those things that is <laughs> it's pretty common. So when when that happens, though, you know, I would think that Rick Rick DeMulling is our guest. I, I I would think that you fifty percent of you is compassionate because it's a teammate and a fr- you know probably more often than not if he's a position player, it's it's a friend. But at the same time, maybe even frustrated because you need the guy to get out of the tank in order to make your job easier and to make the unit click. So h- how do you balance it? Whose job is it to go to that guy and go, look, man, what's going on? Or or do you just let it naturally run its course? I think a little bit of both, right? I mean, because we've 
in the old line room, anyways, you feel like you, everybody's been there at one point. You know, some people stay in it for longer. I mean, it could be something that you're in the tank for a day, you're in a tank for a week. So it's typically not something that you're in for an entire season. Um, but yeah, I mean, the old line room in Indy was extremely close. And we would always kid with each other. And so we had that type of relationship where you could say, hey, man, what's up? And try to get you out of it. But ultimately, it's up to the player to be able to get their mind right and to get back on track. It's Kevin and Query on this Thursday morning. Former Colt Rick DeMulling joining us right now on the Payless Liquors Hotline. Rick, training camp was drastically different when you played uh, two-a-day practices, long hours in the heat. Now that's very different with the collective bargaining agreement terms. Uh, do you think the reduced practices is a good thing or a bad thing as far as getting prepared for the season? You know, I think it's a, a good thing because, it, one, it helps the, the longevity of the player, it helps their body, and it helps them perform later in the season. Because if you're not beating it up right away, then it has a lot better opportunity to heal. Now, I do – I'm like, well, you don't have enough reps. And so then it comes down to the player and getting as many mental reps as I can, watching more film. And just, I mean, I, I got better when I didn't play by doing the mental reps. But if I didn't do my mental reps, then I was kind of screwed and didn't really know anything at that point. But I, I think it depends on how the player approaches it. If they are, like, really dialed in and doing it or just taking it as, like, hey, this is cushion easy, I can just get by and just figure it out later, then that's a detriment. But, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm all for it. If you're going to save your body, you, you need to do that because they perform better late in the season and have a longer career. When it comes to joint practices, did you have many joint practices when you played it? And if you did, did you find those as more beneficial than preseason games or just about the same? No, I we did. So we were up in or down in Tennessee. I can't remember what was first year or second year. Um, I loved it because you get kind of used to going the same guys. Like, I mean, I knew what Josh Williams was going to do. He knew what I was going to do. But if we went against different guys, I mean, it, just the intensity, one stepped up. And then two is just better experience for everybody all the way around. Um, in regards to that being, I think it was better than a game because a game is just one off. Here you're kind of you're going against the guys. I don't know four or five days. I don't know if it's an entire week or not. Um, but yeah, I felt that very beneficial and um, it helped everybody all the way around. Now it's kind of stunk because you're like, oh crap, the intensity is stepping up, and you're really during training camp, your mindset is survival. Can't be in the tank um, at in the, in those days. Oh no! You, I mean, you got you had to get out of the tank quickly, or you're you're heading home, type of thing. And it's just a grind back then, right? I mean, I'm not saying that they don't work hard now, but I know like even the generations previous to when I was playing, they worked harder than we did during training camp, right? But it's just progressively gotten easier. Not not easy, but easier. I've always wondered, Rick, when those joint practices take place. I remember going. Um, I think it was in Champaign, Illinois, probably just before you, but, uh, when the Colts and Rams did them. I mean, you know, they, and this year it's going to be the, the Eagles – or the Bears. Who is it this the year? Bear, the, the Bears, Bears at I'm sorry, Westfield Eagles and Eagles. La- no, Eagles later too. Um, but it, at any rate, do you think coaches talk to the other franchises' coaches to say, hey, it, throw us this look. Like when we're out there doing something, maybe not in a preseason game, but during those workouts – is there any design of reciprocity at all amongst the coaches to present looks that the other team requested because that's what they want to work against? I got to, without knowing for sure, I got to think yes, right? I mean, they, both teams want to get better. There's no, 
no, if you lose the game or don't do well in practice, you're not going to get fired, right? So this is the time that they're going to be more apt to do that. They're not. That's not going to happen in a regular season game, obviously. But I got to think that happens, right? Hey, that's an easy thing. You talking to the D line or the D coordinator from the other team? Hey, if you have a chance, if you can work on this while we're doing this, that would be phenomenal. And he would shoot that back. Hey, if we're can we, you know, short yardage? Can you work on this play? Um, I got to think that happens pretty regularly. Do you think that there is, Rick DeMulling, anything to read into uh, two parts for the Colts as they get set for training camp as a franchise? Is there anything in any way, shape, or form that you can read into or point to why the Colts have gotten off the slow season starts? I mean, it, you know, at the beginning of the year. And then secondly, the injury standpoint. It does feel like they have injuries more than other franchises, but maybe that's because I cover the Colts and we talk about it more than we talk about the Arizona Cardinals. You know what I mean? But can, can you touch on either one of those? Yeah, I got to think that it's pretty even across the board. Sometimes some teams do get the injury bug for whatever reason. I mean, a lot of it is just just happens, right? You have grown 330-pound men running into each other and trying to hit each other as hard as they can. You're bound to get hurt. Um, right. So I don't know if there's like a disparity and like the Colts get hurt more often than not. I, I think it's pretty common, you know, over a five year span, pretty equal over all the entire teams. Um, so in that regard, no. And as far as like the slow start, I, I, that drove me crazy as a fan. Right. Sitting there like, what is going on? These teams like I've, on paper, phenomenal teams. Right. You have a lot of all pro guys that have you know been all pro in the past. You think that they're going to come out guns a blazing. And I don't know if it was the organization just having like more of a low key, you know, not a sense of urgency. Um, but I can't really speak into that for not being in the locker room or anything like that. I, I just it, it just sucked as a fan to sit there and see like, OK, you have all this talent, but not producing early in the season. You know, it's not detrimental. You can still make the playoffs, but it does set you up for having to really fight and claw at the end of the end of the year. How intrigued are you, Rick DeMulling, by this year's? You know, we know the faces for the most part of the offensive line. There is clearly individual talent on the offensive line, but yet it has yet to gel to the level of cohesiveness of the lines that you were on, for example. How intrigued are you by this year's line, and what does a line do? to create that cohesiveness? Yeah, great question. Um, I am extremely intrigued. Obviously, so last year was a down year. The previous year, they were great. I mean, we're not that far removed from them being a phenomenal offensive line, strength of the team, and even like one of the best in the league. I don't know what could have caused last year. There's a a multitude of reasons, Um, but I truly am excited to watch them play this year and watch them. They are going to be the reason why this offense goes this year, right? I mean, you have Anthony Richardson, who is a wild card in regards to what he can do. You have Jonathan Taylor. You put those two guys in an offensive line that is playing, they're going to, they could be pretty scary. Now, I don't know, you know, Anthony's um, much about him in regards to passing, but I mean, he's a freak athlete. So you get him running the ball, Jonathan running the ball, the offensive line, they're going to be pretty phenomenal. Uh, I think they they could be a pretty scary offense to play. Um, and it, uh, now I forget the next question that you said or the what the lead-in was. Well, just, you know, exactly that. I mean, like what, what sorts of things – I mean, do you guys stay in touch as a line over oh. the course of the offseason? Or maybe is it even better to kind of get away from each other in the course of the offseason to create that yeah. solidarity over the course of the year? Yeah. 
yeah, really for us, um, what I remember the best thing that we did was just year together. Like not just in the O line room, not just at practice, but we'd go have dinners, go have you know, hang out together as much as possible. Obviously a lot of people are married and they have their lives, but it was just that's for me doing things outside of football and then I big proponent of like as even though it stunk going through training camp, going through something hard together really helps gel people together. I mean, it, it can fracture people as well, but it depends on what kind of leadership you have in that room. I mean, you could have, like, a horrible, horrible time in regards to, like, how grueling training camp is. But if you have the right leadership, it's it's almost enjoyable, and it brings people together, right? Because you're sitting there, you're going through the same adversity. You're going through the same trials and tribulations, and that tends to bring people together. Now, it can fracture, like I said, if you don't have the right leadership to kind of pull you together. Um but, yeah, I think spending the time together is the way that you, you bond and the way that you trust somebody. It's Kevin and Query on the Payless Liquors Hotline. Rick DeMulling joining us for another couple of minutes. You mentioned it a little bit, Rick, uh, Anthony Richardson, Jonathan Taylor. As a fan right now watching this team heading into camp, what are the biggest storylines that have your interest levels raised? It's going to be how many reps does Anthony Richardson get? Does he – Is he? I mean, I can't – I don't think he's starting out at number one. I don't know yet. Um, but, like, how is he understanding the offense? How is he taking command of the offense? And then the, what respect is he getting from the – I mean, because it, it, you're going to have to earn your respect. And I don't think he's the type of kid – like, I met him one time, and he was just, you know, looked me in the eye, shook my hands, and things that you look for. Um, however, he needs to earn the respect of the entire offense and of the team, for that matter. And that, all signs for me point to that's what he's doing. He's putting in the work. He's not, you know, showing up thinking that he's got it all together and he's not thinking that he's going to be giving it to him, right? I think that's where a lot of these young guys fall into when they have troubles early on is when they show up, think it's just going to be given to them. So I think you can just see how he interacts with the team and the team interacts with him. That'll be the big telltale sign for me. Rick, I don't recall whether or not – I mean, I'm sure that it was the case. I don't recall – any sort of like really big contract issues of, amongst teammates of yours when you were there. I mean, I, I'm sure it took place, but obviously when Peyton Manning was your quarterback, you know, and was well entrenched by the time you got here. So th th there you have piece A, and that everybody knew Edwin James was going to be the running back. Um, how do you handle it as a teammate when you have guys that you know are going through? a contract negotiation or even dispute and you know that their best interest may be to detach a little bit from the team unit. How do you not like hold resentment there? At the end of the day, it's a business, right? It really, that part really sucks about the NFL because I grew, I grew up in college where it was, that's where you were. There's no, there was no transfer portal. There was none of that. So there was more like to me, a lot more loyalty. So that carried over like into the NFL, but then quickly you find out it's a business. Like you, you love the person, you're with the person, you, you want them to do what's best. You want everybody on the team to get paid as much as they can, right? I mean, that, that should be the mindset. It should never be, hey, they shouldn't get paid. That money should go here, here, and here. Like, you know, you want everybody to get paid as much as they can because it's such a short window to make a living in this, in this league. I mean, some people are blessed to play for 20 years, crazy like that. Some people are in and out in a, in a couple of months. So you want them to get paid as much as possible, and there's typically no animosity. 
at least in the O-line room, right? We were all for each other. And I, I can't speak for any other position group or any other team, but as far as the Colts in the early 2000s, it seemed like everybody was pulling for each other, right? And you knew who was probably going to get paid. We had some really high, big earners, and we had, like, a lot of role players like myself. I didn't, I knew I was not going to get paid the $15 million a year. That just wasn't my where I was. And so I think you're pulling for everybody, and that, that's what makes a team better. Or if you start sitting there having, like, this person shouldn't have got paid, then that starts crumbling from the inside out. And that, to me, shows zero leadership. Okay, speaking of leadership, Rick, I'm curious of this before we let you go. I want you to envision a situation back when you were a player in the Colts locker room. Rough game, things aren't going well, guys are sitting there staring at the floor, and one player steps up and goes, guys, like we got to get this together. Let's go. Let's rally. And everybody says, and everybody rallies behind that player. The natural, for people listening, the natural answer is going to be Peyton Manning because he was the quarterback, the face of the franchise, and, and arguably the greatest player to play the game. We know that. Aside from Manning, tell me the player, when I mention that scenario to you, that you recall or could envision seeing that people would be surprised by. Surprised by, um, I mean, my first thought is Jeff Saturday, um, but I don't know if people will be surprised about that. I mean, he was he, he was fiery. He got after it. I mean, I, I love playing with Jeff, and um, the other guy would be Mark, Marcus Pollard, tight end. Um, he was pretty vocal. Let's get after it. But to be honest with you, it was a pretty. If that happened, we'd have to be something serious had to be going on because we didn't typically, even if it was one game, everybody kind of bounced back and knew, but. Um, that didn't happen too often. Uh, we were had some pretty solid teams and it continued into the, in the mid-2000s there, so 2005, 6, 7. Um, but, yeah, that didn't happen too often. But I would say Jeff Saturday and Marcus Pollard. So what is life like for you between now and when you're able to sit down, enjoy a cold beverage, and watch the Colts? <laughs> really, it's just trying to – I have to do my functional exercises because my body is so beat up and – trying to figure out that so if I don't do my exercises it's hard to get out of bed but really it's just trying to stay healthy as I as I can my wife's a, a an amazing health coach so she has got me going in the right track uh, we own an insurance agency so just trying to figure out life being a parent and a, and a husband well we're happy that uh, you're still around we look forward to talking to you over the course of the year Rick and welcome back from the Tetons I certainly appreciate the time this morning absolutely I'll be good and go Colts Hair looks great, by the way. Rick DeMulling on the Payless Liquors hotline. By the way, one thing I should elaborate on real quick before we get to the morning checkdown. Uh, when I mentioned Jim Mora went up against Peyton Manning, what I meant by that was that playoffs rant, people probably forget. The Colts were playing San Francisco. They had several turnovers in the game, including a couple of pick sixes to the Niners. And Mora had been riding Manning a little whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. You're listening to Kevin Inquiry on 93.5 and 107.5. The Fan. Well, this one, this one I know. Little Len, Steal My Sunshine. That's certainly the case this morning with uh, 
Very little, if any, sunshine. Very hazy this morning. Very foggy on this Thursday morning on Kevin and Query. But something that's a little more, we'll, we'll get a little less haze on it, is the current status of Jarris Walker. For that, we turn to the Fieldhouse Files and Scott Agnes, who joins us on the Payless Liquors Hotline. Scott, good morning. How you doing? Hey, good morning, Mark. All right, so the Jarris Walker injury, for those who are maybe just getting in their cars and joining us, uh, Woj sent out a tweet yesterday that said, Indiana Pacers forward Jarris Walker, the eighth pick in the 2023 NBA draft, underwent a minor procedure to remove loose bodies in his right elbow. Uh, Walker's expected to be fully recovered for the start of training camp in September. So can you elaborate? What are loose bodies? Jake and I have kind of been thinking, is it like a bone chips or cartilage situation? What what are loose bodies in the elbow? Yeah, it's essentially just things floating around there that can cause irritation that pop up from time to time. It's oftentimes not even like a constant pain or soreness, but you, you know, you might bump it on the table or bump it on the bus going over to the arena or battling in the post, or it's just sore one day and it's just really stiff and not allowing the full flexation of that elbow, therefore directly impacting the shot and, uh, you know, he didn't make any excuses about it, but now I look back at summer league where he shot just 34% and you got to wonder, all right, uh, I think we have a little causation here to probably what directly impacted his shooting stroke. So, so this injury was sustained in March though. So I'm assuming the Pacers were aware of it and they didn't think it could get worse for playing in summer league. Yeah. Yeah. And th- this is one of those things I think oftentimes, even players might have in the off season. It just doesn't get out. It's just kind of a cleanup procedure, um, minimally invasive. Uh, it sounds like meaning, uh, you know, it might, they use a, a, a robotic scope, I think, go in there for about five minutes, it seems like, and then clean it out. And then he's done. Um, so it's one of those things. Yeah. Teams are absolutely aware of, um, for instance, because he didn't even go through his pro day with his agency, uh, back in May um, because of it. But, again, he, he went through the draft process, came here in, in early June, worked out for the team. So they were absolutely aware of it. Um, but it, it, it's something that it, it's definitely noteworthy and, and nothing minor because I don't believe any surgery is minor <laughs> because if you're, if you're going into your body, you know, there's something bad could happen. However, that said – uh, this is about as simple and straightforward of a of a procedure, a clean out as it gets. Scott, scale of one to ten, your level of concern. Uh, I'll put it at a one. My meaning, only meaning thing, very little. Yeah, my, and I don't disagree. I'm as I said earlier, I'm playing devil's advocate to an extent. My only thing is, he's 19 years old. So is that a is that a forecast of you know some guys at no fault of theirs some guys' bodies are just prone to injury. We have no idea if that's the case here, but that would be my only concern is you know I think there's always you always have just a hesitation when you start thinking about names of the past that just couldn't avoid injury, right? Although usually it's later in a guy's career, but there are players, Jonathan Bender, who it starts early and you just never shake it. That would be my – am I being too cautionary or too pessimistic? It sounds a little too pessimistic for me as a guy who's just getting his career started. And to the, to the other thing is he's a bigger, a bigger forward, right, 6'6", six, 6'7". Six, six, what we're normally talking about are knees and feet. That's where that's, – those would be red flags. If he has a – if he had like a cleanup procedure on his ankle – 
I'd probably be at more of a four just because of big man and feet. But I'm not sure of an NBA player I can think of whose career, you know, was impacted by, you know, an elbow. And I get your point. It's to the broader context of does one thing lead to the next, anything like that. Um, from what I know about his history, um, and as I'm still learning more, it's not, nothing, at least right now, that that is of too much concern. It's just worth noting. I'm curious, Scott. I know that we've talked to you about this, for the, but for those that are listening that might not have heard, uh, Scott Agnes is our guest, by the way, on the Payless Liquors Hotline from Fieldhouse Files. Sometimes, not often, sometimes, though, over the course of Summer League, there is a player that maybe was not thought to be part of the you know part of the mix that makes a name for themselves. There are also sometimes players that are thought to be certainties in the mix that you expected to see more from. Uh, anybody apply in either situation in your mind? I don't think so, only because the roster as it currently is is kind of set with who who is where. Now there could be tweaks. For example, I still think they need to. Um, trade off one of the big men. You could maybe say the same in the backcourt as well after adding Bruce Brown. Um, but th- there were some encouraging things from a team perspective, a little bit from an individual perspective. I thought Andrew Nimhard crushed it, was just as solid and, and true pro as it gets. Uh, I think we all were saying after game one, yeah, he's too good to be playing here. He's good. Uh, <laughs> and then Isaiah Jackson, I thought, had a lot of bright spots. For example, fans may not know he led – the summer league in rebounds per game. I mean, yes, he only played uh, a couple of games, but getting a double-double, averaging 12-and-a-half, I thought that was uh, pretty impressive. On the other side of that, for example, Trace Jackson Davis, by the way, led the, in his two games with offensive rebounding. But um, I, I try not to take too much away from summer league um, from my performance perspective just because a lot of times guys get – outside themselves or asked to do more or try to feel like they should do more. Um, and I felt that a lot more with Ben Matherin this year. It felt like he, he wanted to insert, assert himself. He wanted to be the guy and, and got a little bit outside of what he is and what makes him such a productive player. Um, but then on the, you asked about, you know, would anybody else maybe crack the rotation or anything like that or be in the mix? I thought Mojave King played quite well. Um, but there's just not a roster spot for him right now. I guess there is a two-way, but all all considerations seem to be going um, for Kendall Brown, although I will say he, he kind of looks sluggish. Yet at the same time, this, this guy just had significant leg fracture surgery after a stress fracture four months ago. So I'm not sure what the realistic expectation could be for a guy like him. Scott Agnes of Fieldhouse Files joining us on the Payless Liggers Hotline on Kevin and Query. Scott, I was at the Hendricks County Fair yesterday. I got home, and I saw on Twitter, Scott Agnes is live on YouTube. And so I checked it out a little bit, and I saw you did like a 30-minute live podcast kind of thing. Uh, One of the things you talked about, you shed a little bit of light on what you think the status of TJ McConnell is. For those who haven't listened or checked it out yet, uh, what do you think the future of TJ McConnell is for the Pacers? Yeah, I appreciate you joining. I plan to do a, several more of those. I want to get into more of that that genre where it's beyond podcast. It's also video. But, no, I, I, I wrote when the Pacers signed Bruce Brown, I, I thought T.J. McConnell now for the first time became expendable uh, on this roster because you look at the number of players they have there in the backcourt, and on top of that, Bruce Brown's versatility offensively and defensively that – in a crunch, he could handle point guard and play it just fine, among many other players, I think, on the roster. So it's not like 
they're looking to move on from him or anything like that. But honestly, more than anything, if I'm TJ, I'm sitting back and saying, all right, what is my future with this team? I'm coming off a career high season. I, I crushed it. I had an incredible year last year. Uh, shot 40% from three. Uh, most people didn't even think I was a great three-point shooter. Uh, you know, I, I would want to maximize my opportunity in, in my professional years right now while I'm having some of the best years of my career. So I, I, gotta, I feel like TJ has got to feel like an odd man out right now and wondering what his status looks like going into next season. Scott, they stand where in terms of talking about the Pacers? They do or do not have an open roster spot. They do not have a true roster spot open of 15. They do have a two-way contract because the league um, added one this year, moving from two to three. So they do have one of those available. So the reason I ask, and I think we're going to have him on the program here uh, in a little over a week because he's on vacation out of the country right now, but if the Pacers were almost looking for like a one-year honorary more so veteran leader type scenario. Is there any chance George Hill finds himself here for one more year? And if not, is his career coming to an end? So George would love another couple of years in the league, playing exactly what you said, being primarily the leader, the mentor, the, the extension of the coaches in the locker room, the player advocate to the coaches right now. Uh, it's it just, not possible because of the roster situation that doesn't mean it won't change going into camp i know he's hopeful uh, about that although we we still need to, to see some some things transpire first i i don't think that is completely done i think it's still very possible uh that he would be back but he's, he's made absolutely clear he wants to play at least another year here be with the team and then he wants to continue on with the franchise in a different role, in a different capacity, and, and something uh, like player relations. But more so, he wants to – he would really like to work with the Simon family and get some, uh, you know, a minority ownership stake and, and have kind of a, a Dwayne Wade-type Utah role where he, he was kind of uh, – he, he would advocate for the franchise. He would represent them. He would also be a mentor and leader. Uh, there's a variety of ways – you could go with that, and he's still trying to figure it out. So in his perfect world, he would be on the roster another year or two, then transition into another role with the Pacers. But right now, as you alluded to at the beginning, there are zero roster spots available. So that can't happen until they make at least a trade. And when when we talk about that role for George Hill, I, I know what an affinity George Hill had as well for the San Antonio organization. Mm-hmm. Do you think that he is specifically targeting – Indiana as the franchise where he'd like to have that kind of a, a post-playing career role because of the fact it's home, or could San Antonio also be one that he would be interested in that regard? Yeah, that's a good point, especially right now when you got Wimby and a lot of young guys. Would he be interested in that? I have not talked to him directly about that since since Wimby. Um, that said, he has a home in San Antonio. You know, C.J. Miles, John Mahimi have homes right nearby the former Pacers, and they hang out a lot. He has a, uh, what do you call it? Like a, a, he has a ranch, a doesn't he? What's that? He has a ranch, right? Yeah, ranch. Thank you. He has about a ranch that I think is about an hour drive out from San Antonio. Um, so I, What I think is clear is here would be his number one choice 
it was his preferred destination because he also he wants this to be something long term. This is just not like the next five years after he's done playing. He I think he wants to do this indefinitely um, in the big picture. And 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 what you'll see a lot of times with these guys is the first, you don't want to play in your hometown for you'd say your first five seven years in the league. There's just so many distractions, so many people wanting a piece of you, so many people hanging on. But at the end of your career, isn't it interesting to see how many former Pacers have made their residencies here, have lived here long-term, and George would like to be one of those. Um, But, yeah, he has a great affinity for San Antonio and for for Greg Popovich. So if they came with him, came to him and said, hey, how about a one-year mentorship role, I think he would take it. Career earnings for George Hill. Mark Dykton, your guess. Go. Oh, boy. Uh, $96 million. Scott Agnes, your guess. Go. 108. Scott Agnes is the winner, if we're going prices right rules. Uh, 109, 331, but that does not include last year's salary, which I would assume was a veteran minimum, right? Uh, no, I think it was like $4 million, $6 million. He made – you're you're right. I'm sorry because Philly paid him 1.3 in 2022, and Milwaukee paid four million of it. So, uh, yeah, so 115 basically. Not bad. No, not bad. No, not at all. There, there's generational wealth. The crazy thing is when you put it in the context now of what's happening, right? Like, and you tweeted this, I think, three weeks ago. It's Desmond Bain, you know, getting 207 million. A guy from Richmond who the Indiana programs here locally didn't recruit. And he's going to probably become one of the wealthiest players to you know be in the league. Gordon Hayward was up there. Eric Gordon up there as guys that have had longevity. Zach There's Randolph made me feel older than seeing. I think Eric Gordon's entering year fifteen. I'm like, oh my goodness. Yeah, just, just <laughs> wait, man. The, yeah, yeah, just wait until guys that you went to college with their sons are retiring. You're like, wait, what? That, that's <laughs> when it becomes real. Speaking of which, that's the last question for you. I guess you had a really interesting column. I can't remember if we talked to you about it or not, Scott. But I thought uh, you'd had a nice piece on Glenn Robinson the third. Is he going to be able to find a landing spot? Man, he's hopeful. Uh, I talked to him last week in Vegas after he worked out for several teams, and he was he was feeling high energy about it. He was encouraged by it. But the fact that he didn't sign or have an agreement right away is indicating that you know teams want to see more or they're not there yet. And I think what we're seeing right now in a big picture, Jake, is Damian Lillard and what's going on there and. To a much lesser extent, James Harden kind of has some things on standstill, kind of sitting by and waiting to see what happens next. Even a team like the Pacers, who, you know, they could get creative and get involved as a third team like they often has or or things like that. We're not seeing many transactions right now. And so um, I think teams would need to, you know, teams might need a roster spot or things like that. But you'd be looking at probably a minimum deal a prove-it type deal for Glenn. But he says, uh, you know, he plans to have a couple more workouts coming up, but he did feel good about his his workouts after being away from the game for two years and only kind of restarting this mentality and trying to get back after it uh, for the last four months. So I can't imagine he's even close to where he would like to be um, going into next season. But nothing is set just yet. What's Scott, on the – oh, sorry. Here's a crazy thought, Scott. Is Portland – Damian Lillard's a hell of a player. I mean, nobody denies that, and he's one of the great clutch players that probably we don't see a lot of because of the fact of where he plays. Mm-hmm. But has Portland put themselves in position now where if they can get pieces for him, it, it 
it doesn't overly destroy them because of the fact that they, I think, they have not one but two promising young players in the backcourt and seemingly have a pretty good young core. Am I too bullish on Portland? No, I, I think either way, it's they're it, they're kind of rebuilding, restarting here. We were all surprised that they knew that Lillard wanted out, and then a couple of days later, in free agency, offered Jeremy Grant such a large contract. That one was a little bit surprising, but I keep it into context and like how many free agents are choosing to go to Portland? Not many, just like very few choose to go to Indiana. So they chose to kind of retain one of their own in Jeremy Grant. And then you got Scoot Henderson adding to the fold, which I still don't understand why Charlotte didn't draft Scoot. Far better talent than Brandon Miller. Um, and we saw that, I think, I think on display in many ways at Summer League. But the trouble here is it's, it's not as difficult situation as the Pacers had in 2017 with Paul George. But remember how much he was clamoring to go to L.A. I want to be a Laker. He was making that as obvious as possible. Well, Dame is doing that with Miami. But the Heat, they have nowhere close to what could be the best package out there. So that's something that the front office of the Trailblazers has to decide upon is how much do you care about making them happy? Obviously, they're not going to throw them to you know, a rebuilding team or anything like that. But it, there's one thing, it's one thing to send them – to a good franchise it's another to see send him to a preferable franchise and i think if you're portland you have to look out for your your team and your fans less so the player as much as you want to have that loyalty factor lillard news seems to be what everyone in the nba is kind of waiting for uh, as far as the chips to fall so scott uh kind of the quiet period of the nba what do you got on the docket hey i played my first uh nine holes with golf in about four months this week so that was fantastic but Really, the next week for me is about playing catch-up. There's so much at Summer League that I was able to get done and talk to people, but now it's putting that into words and, and, and posting that stuff. So I'd say the next week's more about publishing. Um, then it's it just kind of keeping an eye on, bef- on things, and before you know it here in two, three weeks, we'll probably have a schedule and a full preseason schedule announced. So, and NBA's done a really nice job, if you want to look at it this way, of copying the NFL in terms of, trying to be relevant and being relevant in many ways, you know, all year throughout the calendar. Well, we appreciate the time, Scott. As always, we'll keep our eyes out for those articles and hit them long, hit them straight on the golf course, all right? (laughs) I appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Scott Agnes of Fieldhouse Files joining us on the Payless Liquors Hotline. Zach Kiefer coming up at 9.05. Before that, though, we've got Indiana State Fair tickets to give away. We'll do that next. 317-239-1070. It's Kevin Aquary, 93.5-1075, The Fan. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Okay. I'm just kidding. Nine o'clock hour <laughs> underway. Good morning to you, Jake Quarry, along with Mark Dighton, Sam Fritz running the big board for us. Songs that were released on this particular week, I'm going to guess for Paradise City, that would be either 87 or 88? Uh, 87. Yeah. Um, and th- this one is the album, not the song. This was uh, Appetite for Destruction was released tomorrow, turning 20, I'm sorry, 46 years old. Jeez. Nice work, Sam. Made, made Jake feel really old right there. 
Well, it's not 46 years old. It's 36. Well, I was going to say. Was gonna, the, the two of you suck at math, and oh, that's well, coming you, from somebody you, who had to sit with a tutor. You went to school for journalism, man. Yeah, you, know? you, went to, you went to math just recently. I've been out of the game for a while. Well, I listen, algebra, I don't do my own algebra is different than 2023 minus 1987. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, for what it's worth. Uh, Zach Keefe, we're going to join us just a couple minutes from now. The Yesterday when I posted the picture on Twitter of my cologne collection, and people gave me grief for it, rightly so. I, that's part of why I did it. Uh, should I do the watch collection next or sunglasses? Those are the other two things. Where I, baseball hats, I had a real issue in college. I've whittled those down to probably 30, 20, something like that. There's, sunglasses, I feel like, are more kind of like they're all kind of the same. Like they might, I, don't, I can't, ooh, there's not too many variations ooh. of sunglasses unless you have like, remember the ones in the 90s that had like, that went over the top of your head? I'm gonna. Sh- Those were a flash in the pan. Strong disagree on. on well, I would say the watches have more. I would say watches have more variations than sunglasses. I don't know, man. Now, IndyCar, we had a deal. I, I shouldn't say we. I just simply worked there. Uh, every year for the Long Beach Grand Prix, there was always a an agreement with Oakley where we could go to the Oakley factory and go to the Oakley employee store, which was amazing. I think it still exists, but it's just hard to do so to find time during the Long Beach weekend because it's about an hour outside of L.A. But I would load up on Oakley sunglasses to the point where then I got there and I'm like, I don't really have – I have all of these. Um, That's when you have a problem. When you walk into the store and like, I have all this. Spy is a very underrated sunglass line. Okay. Spy brand. S-P-Y? Yes. Very underrated. Uh, not underrated, and obviously now nationally known, Zach Kiefer joins us on the Payless Liquors hotline. He is the national. Now, Zach, tell me if this new title is correct, weaning yourself off of daily Colts coverage. National profile writer. How's that? Sure. Um, NFL writer is fine. You know, I don't have to be pigeonholed into profiles. Well, do you? if you find a storyline that is of intrigue, and it is outside the National Football League. Is it preferred that you're doing NFL-related stories, or is it almost exclusively NFL-related stories? Yeah, so I'll give you an example. Um, it's preferred. I think I'm you know, kind of in the NFL world. It's kind of where my contacts are. And um, with the season kicking off, it's definitely the focus. But, and I know every listener out there, every indie fan is going to love this one. I'm working on this story. I hope no one out there steals this on the best trash-talking stories of Reggie Miller's career because he was among the greats. Now, he didn't have the career that Larry Bird or Michael Jordan had among the other great trash-talkers. But, like, my point being, if I find a good story, and I think indie fans would love this, would eat this up, especially those like me that grew up in the 90s watching those Pacers teams, um, if they think there's a really good story out there that I can pull off, they're going to let me go chase it, whatever sport it happens to be in. So do you find yourself, Zach, and I would imagine this to be the case, this would be what would be challenging for me. Um, I'm the first to admit, I'm not saying, I have no idea if I've, you know, every day I I come in here and I think to myself, today's the day they figure out that I kind of don't belong here. (laughs) There's no way that I could do my job in Phoenix or, well, I did it in St. Louis, but it was harder because I just didn't know the roots. Like you go to St. Louis, you know about, Lou Brock and you know about Bob Gibson what you don't know before you get there is that Willie McGee is like the most popular player in franchise history you know those are the little things you learn once you're entrenched in a market you've been entrenched in Indianapolis will it be a challenge 
to go beyond the surface of of cities and teams beyond Indianapolis? Yeah, I think it will be. And I think that's a really good thing, right, to to be challenged and to have to go find stories that are not sort of embedded in the back of your mind. Like when I jumped on the Colts beat, I think it was 2013 or 2014, like I had a great wealth of knowledge because I've watched every game they played since like the Marshall Falk years, you know. So um, that was like a big – that was like a big – cheat sheet. I mean, it was almost like I was starting 100 yards ahead of everybody else just because I knew, you know, behind Mike Chappell, I knew the history of the team. And that was great for stories and for when I'm talking to guys, like, I remember this game because I remember watching it. So that's a great resource. But I also think it's good to go out and, and be challenged and not know what's going on. And I think the, you know, one of the basic tenets of being a good reporter is being inherently curious. And I'm really curious to see what it's like outside of this city. And that doesn't mean I won't write about the Colts once in a while, but, um, you know, two pretty odd stories I've uncovered so far, Pac-Man Jones adopting Chris Henry's sons. And then last week, a crazy story about Blake Martinez retiring from the NFL to make millions of dollars selling Pokemon cards. So not exactly where I thought it would go, but that's kind of the fun part is, is uncovering these stories that no one's ever heard of. And then telling them. But, yeah, it's, it's going to be different branching out of Indy, but I'm excited about it. There are certain athletes, Zach, that we – let me rephrase that. I think all athletes, we think we know them because we see them in games. We see them in press conferences. But in reality, we really don't know anything about what they're like at home, behind closed doors, when, when the cameras are off. Pac-Man Jones may or may not be an example of that. He's certainly had his fair share of indiscretions over the course of his career, but you got to see a personal side of him. Did it in any way, shape, or form change the image in your mind of Adam Pac-Man Jones? Yeah, it did. And I think that's the biggest thing with this story. There's a lot of a lot of responses to it, right? The thing with Pac-Man Jones is both things can be true. He could and did do a lot of terrible things, one of which was a nightclub shooting. He didn't pull the trigger, but he was involved in that left a man in a wheelchair. Like, that, you don't come back from that. Like, that man's in his wheelchair for the rest of his life, and that's real, and that's Pac-Man's doing, right? He, his, his hands are dirty in that. But he's not looking for redemption, and I almost led the story with that line. Like, this is not a redemption story. He's not doing this to make up for what he's done. I just genuinely think he wants to do this good thing for his fallen teammates' family. I just think both things can be true at the same time. We're all complicated people. He's among the most complicated I've ever written about. Both things can be true. He can and has done terrible things in his past, and he's also doing a really remarkable thing right now. So both things are true at the same time, and that's why it's such a fascinating story. He's not doing this to clear his name or to redeem himself. He's doing it simply because he, he loves Chris Henry and he loves these two sons and he feels like he can help them, and he is. Um, but, again, it was not going to be this fluff piece where I just ignore all the things that he was involved in that nearly cost him his career. What Take me through the challenge, Zach Kiefer, of, for example, if you were going to do a profile piece on Shaquille Leonard, he knows you, I mean, or at least he knows of you. He sees you in the locker room. He knows that you're – a legitimate, you know, credentialed, respected writer. What is the challenge and what is the approach when you are now doing profile feature pieces on subjects that you don't know 
and more importantly, they don't know you? Yeah, that's a really good question um, because it's a very real element to all of this. Like, I go in the Colts locker room, like, I can profile Quentin Nelson. Like, Quentin hated talking to reporters early on, but I was able to navigate that over time because I was there every day. And there is an art to that, to getting guys to open up about some personal stuff. And I did that with Shaq, and, and you name the guys on the, on the team the last couple of years. It's completely different when you're going into this blind. I just called Pac-Man out of the blue. Like, I just, it took me a while to get his phone number, called him, and he had no interest in this story. He doesn't know me from Adam. You know, I'm nothing to him. Um, he's never come across me in his NFL career. But that's kind of the pursuit is trying to get these guys to open up, and it took some time. I mean, this one took like six months for me to just get him to talk. And then he finally did. And, and Blake Martinez wasn't super easy either, but I finally got him after a couple of weeks. But, yeah, I mean, I think you learn a lot talking to NFL players at different stages throughout your career. Like, if you can go up to Shaq Leonard after they just lost a close game and he's hot, like he's ticked off, like that helps you down the line dealing with the emotional roller coaster, for lack of a better phrase, that these guys go through. And I think you learn, like my students ask me this all the time, like how do you become a good interviewer? Well, one, you have to be an actual good listener. And so many reporters lose sight of that. They just ask a question and then stare at their phone. It's like, no, like, I don't know, listen to what they're saying. Isn't that the whole point of this? Um, So I think I've gotten better at that over the years. And at the end of the day, I don't want to have an interview with these guys. I want to have a conversation. And it takes a little bit to get there. But when you do, you start to really peel back the layers and go beneath the surface and get some pretty interesting stuff. You ever have a story that breeds another story? In other words, you're talking to a guy, Zach, yeah, and in the middle yeah. of it, he goes, man, I'll tell you who you really need to talk to. Boom, 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 boom. And then he sets it up for you, or she. Yeah, I love I love that question because that's, that's happened a couple times. I'll, I'll give you a notable one is, Maybe eight, nine years ago, I kind of wrote about why Indiana became a basketball state. And I went back to, like, the 1910s and 20s about the agriculture impact and how it boomed in the 40s and 50s. And while I was researching that, obviously the 1954 Milan team came up. But I was talking to the historian, and he was telling me story after story about Bob Collins, who chronicled that team. It was a great Indianapolis Star columnist, probably the best ever. And he said, you know, the story might be Bob Collins. So a year later, I found everything I could about Bob Collins. And I, you probably read him growing up, Jake. Um, I read a lot of him as I was researching this piece. And for those that go back, he was, he's the goat of Indianapolis columnists. And that spawned simply because I was researching the basketball story. And I'm not going to lie, that was one of the most fun stories I've ever had. I mean, this guy... One quick thing, he went to cover the Rose Bowl in 1968. IU was out there, took a day trip to Vegas, lost all of his money, all of his expense money, wired the company back in Indianapolis and said, old money gone, need new money. So they sent him new money. And he lost it at the table. So um, that was so fun. And so that goes back to it. Like, just listen and always be on the hunt for the next story. Zach Kiefer, The Athletic, joining us on the Payless Liquors Hotline. Uh, your latest piece about Blake Martinez retiring to make a killing selling Pokemon cards. Zach, is that the future of possibly some of these running backs who are ticked off about their contract situations, that they might have to have other options to make a living? I don't know if it's that extreme. I, I do think Blake is one of one. He is a very talented guy, and, and you can't just fall into millions selling Pokemon cards. There is an art to it that I had no idea about. Um. But the running backs, are, they're in a tough spot, man. I mean, you are what the market says you're worth. 
right? And I think they're having a hard time coming to grips with that. But I think every every situation's different. As it pertains to this team and this town, I know JT's frustrated. I know JT wants to get paid. I know Jim Mercer wants to get this done. I know Chris Ballard intends to pay him. Um, but the reality is, can, can you guys name the last time a team was a Super Bowl champion led by their best player on offense being a running back? Terrell Davis. I mean, I can argue Marshall Falk for those Rams teams a couple years later, but you had Kurt Warner, so it wasn't like they were run-focused. You can maybe argue Marshawn Lynch and the Seahawks, but really that was the defense. That, Falk that, was that, definitely the straw mixing the drink, though. There's no question. Yeah, were, yeah, Falk was incredible. But my point being, that was 2000. That was 98. So that's the reality. But I think in a vacuum, the Colts are going to look at this different. And it's a little bit like what the Giants are doing. So what's Daniel Jones without Saquon? I don't think the Giants want to find that out. That's going to help Saquon's leverage, whether he gets a deal in a year or not. With the Colts, I don't want to find out what Anthony Richardson is like without Jonathan Taylor back there. Think about how many three and outs there would be but Zach, if you don't have a stud running back. Here's to me. Let me offer you two points here. JMV and I talked about this. And tell me if this makes sense to you. Falk is a perfect example. Marshall Falk was a wonderful player, and people forget Peyton Manning had Marshall Falk for a year. And right. then Bill Polian went with both the economic move but also the move of I want a running back that is hitting his prime at the same time as Manning as opposed to Manning in his prime having to do a transition of running backs. So they went with Edron James. For the Colts, the real challenge is – in order to get that to coincide for Anthony Richardson with Jonathan Taylor's prime, they're going to have to pay for it. He's going to get a year with him, and then you have to decide whether or not Richardson is far enough along to align the timetables. Otherwise, you go with a third of the price, well, not even that, probably 30% the price, with 70% the production out of a young running back and, and aligning the timelines. That's a difficult balance for Chris Ballard. Agree or disagree? It is. It absolutely is. And it's crazy because you're talking about, you know, a year ago, JT was one of the best players in football, single-handedly won them several games. And that's the expectation as he comes back from this injury that he can still do this. It's hard. It's hard to marry that. It's hard to marry a Peyton Manning going first overall and Edron James going fourth overall in back-to-back years. Like, that's just not going to happen. The Colts, let's say they have a top-five pick next year, which is very realistic. They're not going to draft a running back, are they? Right with Marvin Harrison Jr. available and some of these quarterbacks, um, but that's the delicate dance that they have to work through. My thinking is, and I think this is their approach: if everything about this franchise right now is getting this kid up to speed at quarterback, and they want him to play early and all that, don't you want to have as many pieces around him that will help acclimate him to this league? Because he's going to stumble. Like I don't expect him to have a great rookie year. I don't expect him to have a great training camp. I think people are probably going to overreact to some of his bad days. Like, they're going to come. This is how this league works. And the Colts, they got some questions in the secondary, but it's still a pretty solid defense, especially up front. I think they're going to get their way with him in camp. And all that matters at the end of January when this season is over is is the arrow pointing up at quarterback. And I think the best way to do that is obviously you're going to have JT this year. Pittman and JT – and you got to fix that line. you got to have these pieces around him to help him grow because we saw this two different ways, right? Manning had the infrastructure, had to learn, had to go 13-3 and three and 13 his first year, and then he really took off. Luck didn't have a lot around him. He had some weapons. He had Reggie. He had T.Y. He had Fleener. 
but the line was never fixed, and the running back spot was never good. They won 100 games without a 100-yard rusher, and the infrastructure around Luck eventually failed him, and then he got hurt, and they never were the same. So I think it's hard to say you need a great running back to win a Super Bowl because you don't, but the Colts are not winning the Super Bowl this year, next year, not anytime soon. They need to build around this quarterback, and I think one of the best ways to do that is to have an elite running back make things a little bit easier for Zach, I think – and tell me if you agree or disagree with this. I'm not saying that this is is accurate, but it feels to me like the way that we are, where we are now in the NFL with executive decision makers, a la general managers, is that the running back position is like when you're redoing your home – it is wonderful to have a huge theater size television in your basement, a flat screen one. It's awesome. And when you have the money to do that, who wouldn't buy that? But then you think about it and you're like, but I do know that like within the next three years, I've got to re-roof my house and I do need a new furnace. Two of those are absolute necessities. The third is a luxury. Do I spend the money on the luxury right now knowing that the bills of the necessity are going to be right around the corner? And it feels to me like running backs, be it fair or not, are now seen as the theater size screen in their basement to executive decision makers in the NFL. Agree? Yeah, it, it feels like they're the luxury items that you love to have the flat screen. It, it's fun. It wins, it wins you games, if we're going to continue the metaphor but you've got to fix the roof, right? You have to have the roof. And so not every team is in the same spot. That's important to know. The Colts are not in the spot they were a year ago or two years ago where they kept convincing themselves they were close. Um, the reality is, look at what the Falcons are doing. They draft Bijan Robinson, the best running back in this draft, I think eighth overall, right? Because you get him for four years on that rookie deal and you have the option for five and that's the most economical stance you can take on getting an elite running back. The Colts have enjoyed that for the most part, paying Jonathan Taylor an eighth of what he's worth the last couple of years because he was a second-round pick, and he was, you know, he's on his rookie deal, and you can afford that. So moving forward, you're going to have Richardson on his rookie deal, which is manageable. I have no problem with them giving JT, let's say, three for 45, 15 a year. I think that puts him behind Derrick Henry and behind McCaffrey, but I think JT's happy with that. I'm just throwing numbers off the top of my head out here, but it seems like that's fair and that's pretty high-end market-wise. But, yeah, the reality is teams are going to want to pay running backs for five years on a rookie deal, and they're going to be very, very, very selective on those second contracts. That's a brutal reality for the running backs, and only a couple are going to get the exceptions. Derrick Henry did, McCaffrey did because they're that good. I think JT's in that category. I think he gets a nice second contract. But that being said – this is the ugly reality for it right now. And teams are looking to get these guys in their best years, which is early, on that rookie deal. And then they're getting rid of them because that's the most economical move. And you'd rather save it to pay a $20 million receiver or a $50 million quarterback. So it seems like the outcry from running backs, they're voicing their displeasure earlier this week. That seemed different. But does anything actually end up changing from all of this, or is it just another blip on the radar and we're like, oh, yeah, remember that happened, but it's the same old, same old, you know, six months later? Yeah, I think it's the latter, Mark. I don't think much changes. You think this is going to change owner's stances? A couple tweets? It's going to change GM's stances? No, GM's got to win. And, and, and the smartest way to win is to not pay a running back top dollar. That's unfortunate because 
Like, what's the one position on the field that you can hit anywhere, anytime? You know, like, that's just the reality of it. And and JT, like, it still burns at Jim Irsay that they wasted that 2021 season that he had. He had an Edger and James-type season. More yards than any running back the Colts have ever had. You guys watched it. I mean, he's got 11 men in the box against the Patriots in the fourth quarter, and he still busts a 57-yard touchdown. Like, he took over games, and he won them games, and they were hot, and then they completely collapsed. And, and one of the reasons Jim Mercer was so mad at the end of the season, not just Carson Wentz, but it's because they wasted what could have been a historic run in the playoffs. He felt like they were like the 95 Colts. You remember that team, Jake. That, that just got hot, and Zach Crockett went crazy in San yeah. Diego, and they made it all the way to the AFC Championship game. It sounds ridiculous, but Ursay ripped all of these stats off for me, and it was similar. And when you've got a guy taking over games like JT was, that's the dream, right, is to get hot in the playoffs. And so that burns at him that they wasted that year with JT. But the reality is I just don't see very many of them getting the big second contracts that they want. But, Zach, you know what's interesting about that 95 year? What's interesting about that 95 year is that the all-pro running back Marshall Falk was hurt, and it was Zach yeah. Crockett and Lamont Warren filling in that nobody would heard of taking over and getting the team hot. Yeah, and you know then I mean? you, go back to, you go back to 2006 and look at Peyton Manning's numbers. Look at Peyton's numbers in the playoffs, the sides, the second half against the Patriots. I mean, everyone knows out there that – um, you know, it was it was Dominic Rhodes and, and Joseph Adai that carried that team in the second half. And the Super Bowl that the Colts won was largely based on the run game that night, which is, you know, a trip back in time because, you know, that team was so pass-heavy. But you're right. I remember Zach Crockett going crazy in San Diego that day in that wild-card game. Do you, Zach, did you ever watch the Rocky movies? Yeah. So Rocky Balboa as a fighter – you know, Mickey would would tell him all the time, like, you got to switch to the southpaw and land the big knockout blow. But the way that Rocky wanted to fight was to just keep hitting at the abdomen and just keep hitting, keep hitting, keep hitting, and then finally Apollo goes down. Once, once Then you hit him with the knockout blow. Can Jonathan Taylor be a Rocky Balboa fighter? Is he a guy that can just hit you over and over and over, or is he strictly the knockout blow against New England running back? No, I think it's the former. I think he can do both. I really do. I really believe, and I've seen it happen in games. Um, I really do. He, he, he's the complete back. He can catch. He can get you for eight, nine a clip. I've seen it second, second half, fourth quarter of that Houston game last year on the road. It was the opener. Everyone remembers it because they tied. But if you go back, JT dominated the fourth quarter, and Matt Ryan drove them down there to get that field goal that they eventually missed. But the reality was JT took over that game, and he didn't have a big one. He didn't have a pop, but he can get you seven, eight, nine yards a clip and just move the chains and go back to San Francisco in the rain the year before in that night game where Carson had the weird interception early and they were playing pretty poorly. JT just took over from there, and he's done it. He's done it time and again, and I really think him at full strength makes Anthony Richardson's life so much better, and I think that above all needs to be priority number one for this franchise moving forward but i don't know how many guys you know conversely can can take those home runs like jt like he won them games because he was able to turn what most guys would turn into 15 yards he would turn them into 57 yard touchdowns or 60 yard touchdowns and he had more than anybody in the league that year so i think that's the key and and i think his value i think that speaks to his value is 
Does he score points? Yes. Does he change the way defenses play you? Yes. All that matters for the young quarterback. And I think that's why in this particular situation for a team that's not going to be competing for the Super Bowl anytime soon, you need to make sure the infrastructure around the quarterback is sound. And that's why I'm paying Jonathan Taylor if I had the choice. Do you think Chris Ballard will pay him? I do. I do. He's always paid his homegrown studs. And it, it really comes down to this question. Does he deserve it? That's what Chris asked himself. Does he deserve it? Is he what we want to be about? And JT checks everybody. Uh, as, as of right as now. He, as I, long as the ankle is good. Zach, the thing about Jonathan Taylor that he has going for him and the thing that if I'm Jonathan Taylor or his representative uh, needs to say to Chris Ballard is, listen, uh, so far I'm the guy you're hanging your hat on, right? And in terms yeah. of Chris Ballard's tenure as – as, and, and he's had good draft – don't get me wrong. I mean, he's made some nice picks. Shaquille Leonard would certainly be one of them as well. But as of right now, the player that Chris Ballard plucked in the draft that has been the one that people go, yeah, that was a great pick, man, is so far it's Jonathan Taylor, right? So if I'm Jonathan Taylor, I'm I'm reminding him of that. Uh, what other things do you have working in terms of future columns, Zach? I'm going to be on the road a lot. It's going to be weird in August. I'm not going to be going to Westfield every day, but I'm going to be on the road. I'm going to be bouncing around to six or seven NFL training camps all over the country, um, digging into some really interesting stories about some players. And It's crazy. Football season is, is just about here. I know some players are reporting today, some rookies across the league. Um, so I will have a lot of stuff coming for you guys in August. It's like the Madden tour bus. It's the Kiefer That's van right. rolling through. That's right. It's the it's a Kiefer rental car. There we'll you we'll go. put it that way. I, I don't I don't arrive with uh, with the same panache as, as John Madden. <laughs> that is beautiful. I know. You know you should do. Like here's a story idea for you. You ready? Yep. The number of players, football or basketball. The number of players, I think in this town alone, like Al Harrington comes to mind. I think Brad Miller comes to mind. Players that have taken their NBA or NFL money and parlayed it into a post-playing career in the cannabis industry. And the name of the column is Kiefer and Reefer. And you just you just talk to players that are making money off that. What do you think? I think the, I think the column name is better than the actual column. <laughs> <laughs> Zach, last one for me real quick. Have you had any chance to watch the quarterback show on Netflix? If so, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I'm like two episodes in. Um, my only hesitation with these are, is it going to be what the quarterback wants us to see? And it is to a degree, right? But I want to see the real stuff. I think that's why Hard Knocks has lost some of its luster. Is It feels staged, some of it. Um, but it's pretty good. I watched the Colts, you know, the Colts beat the Chiefs in the Mahomes, uh -huh. you know, section. And I was, oh, yeah, that really happened, which sounds crazy. Um, it's pretty good. It's, it's not as good as I'd hope, though. Okay. Yeah, I, I saw the I saw the first couple episodes and it's like, oh, okay, the Chiefs, the highlight of the Colts season, and then you're like, oh wait, that Vikings game is coming up later in in this season too. So that might I, be the I can't low. Wait to watch that one. Oh, I know. I, I, I'm still my jaw's still on the floor from that game. Zach, we appreciate you picking up the phone for us every single time. We ask you to have a great August. Enjoy the road trip around the training camps, and we will have you on as the NFL season nears. Thank you again, my friend. Let's do it. Thanks, guys.